So before we get started, uh, there will be some people, believe it or not, that have only heard your name. They've never even seen you, even if they don't read every Interglobics magazine or every other cover of every magazine in this industry you're on. But please do me a favor, introduce yourself the best way you can, and and then we'll go from there, because I want to also start with a nice congratulations for yesterday. So. Well, well, first of all, I'm Christian Bellotti. Um, I recently retired from Microsoft and have been in the data center industry for a couple of decades, if not more. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've been around in this industry playing and having fun with everyone else. Um, my why is I want to solve the seemingly impossible, um, by inspiring others to think bigger. I think as an industry, we need to think bigger. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I'm really grateful that you're here. I think that as I was trying to share with you last night, I think the best way to memorialize some of the things that you have that inspires a lot of people is not that not that coming to DCAC you came this year right but you hadn't spoken at it yet but like <laughs> I think that those, I will I promise I will speaking to the mic when you say that no, yeah what I'm saying <laughs> that's a commitment I appreciate yeah. it yeah there's a lot of stuff to unpackage from your generation you guys are the you guys are the seniors right I'm part of the freshman class you guys are I get to say this, you know, I said it to Crosby once and he was not a big fan of the way I tried to explain it, but that's because one of his biggest blind spots is his own humility, right? He's, he does a lot for this industry. I think that more than most people, in fact, and he takes very little of that credit because he has yeah, a hard- I agree. I, I, I think Chris is an unsung hero in our industry. Uh, he's done so much for so many different people. I 100% agree with you on that. He does a lot under the radar. I, one of my favorite things, I don't know if I told you this, um, cause I think last night we were having dinner and you were talking about, you know, some of the profound leaders in the space. You talked about Chris and you talked about certain things. And I was like, let me just, and I interrupted you remember? And I was like, let me just tell you the human side of him though. I mean, all the accomplishments that he's made in this industry, like yourself, like the Peters. And, yeah. you know, there's five of you. I, I kind of look at it as the five leaders of the mafia of the industry, right? The five leaders, of the five families, and you guys have significant influence because I said this to Chris once and he wasn't a big fan of it, but. You guys started this industry. It, you you were in this industry before it was even called this industry. You were just doing things in, in orbit of this industry until you landed directly in the middle of it and then became a pioneer and leader within it, right? I've been in this industry since 2000 when I got out of the military and I don't think that there's been a time in which I haven't heard your name, right? And now I have the privilege and the honor of sitting down with you and having learned so much about your background. I think it's just fascinating and I wanna draw that out for everyone else to hear so they could all, Coming to conferences is great. Saying things to people are fantastic, but it's fleeting and it's gonna be gone. This is something that hopefully for the next two to three generations, your grandkids will listen to this podcast as they're doing a history report about the vertical, the growth of one of the most amazing mainstream industries in the world. And you are one of the five pioneers behind this industry that will go down in history. You, you have the, you created PUE. Everyone in this industry knows that that's a metric standard that we all measure something against. And you were the founder of that. So I say all these things because speaking into this is gonna live for a long time and it's gonna educate a lot of people. It's gonna inspire a lot of people. And through this, I hope to give you the platform to be able to change this industry long after you're gone. But before we do that, what's this award that you won? You make it into the Big Nerd Hall of Fame yesterday? What was that? Yeah, so uh, before I go there, I do want to comment on something you said. I, I kind of agree with Chris. You know, I I, I appreciate, uh, you know, you saying one of the five, but the reality is this industry is a village. And, and for me, um, 
and I even wrote a note to some of the folks last night who were congratulating me for the award I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and that is that really it's what we learn from each other and everyone played a critical role in this, uh, in this industry. And, you know, you do recognize maybe there's five people you see more or whatever, but at the end of the day, none of us could have gotten where we are without each other. And, and this industry is, is a magnificent industry. You know, as, as I, as you may know, I've retired, but I'm now still getting involved in the industry in, in other ways. But the reality is, um, I can't leave this industry because of the constant learning and the, the camaraderie and everything. It's really, uh, uh, just such a unique and wonderful place to be. And it's hard to leave it because life is about learning. And I am constantly learning for, from just about everyone, from you, uh, our discussions last night, I, I told you earlier, I found quite inspiring and, and that's what life is all about. And that's really, what I think defines this industry. No, I, well said, and I agree. It does take a village. I think though, there are, um, there were only so many Henry Fords that were building cars in those times, but whoever the leaders of the other major families of automobiles, they had no idea what they were building when they were building this industry, you know, the automotive industry. And I think that you guys should have the credit for doing the same. I think this industry is the wild, wild west. It's in its infancy, uh, but it's emerging. It'll become more mainstream in the next, in this year, by the end of this year, data centers will be on the lexicon for most people, especially emerging students and, and veterans. They're all gonna know about this industry more and they're gonna know that that's gonna one day, in spite of themselves or because of themselves, they'll be in orbit in this industry, either working directly inside of it or in the ecosystem that's in orbit of this industry. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what was this award that you won and, um, and who are some of the other people that were either in your nomination class or have won in the past? Yeah, so this was for the uh, National Academy of Engineers. I was elected uh, to be part of that this year's class, which is about 100 people. Um, among the, the people joining this year is uh, uh, Jensen Huang from uh, NVIDIA, NVIDIA, the CEO of, of NVIDIA. And, um, and previously, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and one of the greats of our industry, uh, Luis Barroso, uh, which you know I've always admired. I've, I've always felt he was one of the giants that you know you're talking about earlier. Really saw things well before everyone else did. So, um, so I'm really touched by the whole thing, uh, and it's especially important to me because I come from a line of engineers. It's really smart, and. Um, and I, you know, one of the things I really wish that my dad was still around to see this because it really, if I think about it, it's for him. Yeah, for sure. And and look, maybe that's the perfect segue to start at the very beginning, right? Because it was pretty inspiring to me that not only the incredible impact that your father had on you, but sounds like had on your son as well. And it, And I think that you were telling me like this, your dad wrote his own biography right 400 page one or something like that and i would love for you to share with us you know a little bit more about your background you were from new york born and raised is that where you yeah, were yeah okay no, i that, wasn't born in, in in new york that's right so listen why don't you start at the very beginning and um and let people understand how people become what you've arrived at as a celebrity in this industry and a pioneer and a captain of industry yeah well uh, as you say my dad was a really important figure in my life he was an engineer, 
but uh, he had an incredible life in Hungary uh, during the war. You know, he went through World War II. He was in the Hungarian Revolution. Um, and just some amazing stories of survival that you and I talked about. Um, but, um, you know, the, the reason he came to America, I think, is an important one. And that was he was, when he was 15, was taken uh, by uh, the Germans at that time out of... Uh, they repatriated those that they've conquered. Absolutely. And right. they took him and marched, started marching him to, um, to, to uh, Germany. And of course, they didn't feed him or anything. And he and his buddies just went AWOL and said, there's no way we're going to continue this journey and fight for the Germans. We don't even believe in them. And they went AWOL and were rolling around in, in Europe, trying to make their way back to Hungary. He was like 17, you said? 15. Oh, snap. 15 at the time. And, uh, and then because they were wearing uh, German uh, attire, uh, military gear, they were captured by the Americans and became prisoner of war. And he was, he, he says the first thing that happened was they sprayed him down with DDT. He didn't know it was DDT at the time to kill all the lice and everything that was crawling around. Cause of course health conditions weren't the greatest back then. And, um, so he, uh, he pretty much, uh, got to know the Americans. They gave him cigarettes and chocolate and rifles to shoot, rabbits with and he's like well if this is how i'm treated as a prisoner by the americans that was really what intrigued him about one day going to america at age 15 and so when the hungarian revolution happened some you know 12 years later and he had already gotten his degree in aeronautical engineering at that time the first graduating class from the technical university of budapest with an aeronautical degree really um he uh he uh, left Hungary during the revolution um, and then met my mom and they spent time around in Europe. Uh, interesting fact, his first patent was when he worked for Ford in Germany. Imagine that he's actually working in Germany. Uh, and uh, it was anti-lock brakes. Was That's what he was working on? In 1959. Really? Um, it never came to fruition because they didn't have software to do the, you know, the precision of, of breaking as they do now. But, but the fact that he actually thought about that. He I was theoretically was, designing everything that hadn't, that science couldn't keep yeah, up with. So, so I think if I think about, you know, my dad was an inventor and he Disruptive. had patents. Yeah, yeah. And so it was kind of interesting. And then he went to Dassault in France where I was born. And then after five months after I was born, we came to this uh, country on the Hanseatic, which was a ship and seven day journey with nothing. Now, did your dad have family in the States? Uh, my mom had relatives. Okay. So her there sisters were already there and they, I think they were, may have even been sponsors originally. You're, you were one of two children and you're the oldest, correct? Yeah. So was you, if you were five months old, I'm guessing that you were the only child they were dragging over to the States with you? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. With. Yep. Yeah. So, so one child, yeah. And where did they end up at? Um, ultimately, um, I think they spent a little time. My dad was looking for a job. He spent probably- uh, But did he arrive at like Ellis Island? Oh yeah, New we New came York. through Ellis Island. Okay, got yeah. you. And, and, but he spent some time in Boston trying to get a job and then, uh, you know, hung out. He had some friends there that he went to school with, I think. Sure. And so, uh, you know, back in the days when he was a kid and- uh, but then he got a job after 120 or so uh, applications he filed. He got one offer. I think only 
three companies actually even responded, and that was IBM. IBM, and it was a job at IBM Research. And back then, the only reason you got a job because no one really wanted to work in this new thing, new discipline called uh, software. And so he's like, well, I need a job. I've got a kid, so I'm going to take this job, even though I'm an aeronautical engineer. And I'm kind of interested in something kind of crazy. I mean, got into software engineering, and he's probably one of the pioneers of- of, uh, Didn't you say that there's a law or a rule or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He- some people consider him the uh, father of virtual memory, and it's and his work is actually still taught in universities today. It's called Bellotti's Anomaly. I would argue I'm the <laughs> right. I'm Bellotti's Anomaly. I was like, but nice. <laughs> but anyway, so um, and so he it was really some something, and of course I'm not a software guy, but it had to do with paging theory, and he uh, did a lot of work in that space. And it became a, the foundation for virtual memory, which is in all computing today. So you were saying something uh, in one of the last conversations we had where you kind of grew up around some of the giants of technology as that was emerging back in those days. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, was, it was interesting, you know, as a kid, um, my dad- Upstate New York, where, where was I being? It was, it was Yorktown Heights, okay. which is about 40 miles north of uh, okay. New York City. Um, a bedroom community of New York City. And my um, my dad would always have people over for dinner. And I, I really uh, uh, enjoyed them. They were all regular people and they were just friends from work. Some of them were from out of town, from you know universities or, or other divisions of IBM. And they'd come over for dinner and, and we'd have a wonderful dinner. And these guys would always be funny and cracking me up. And you know, it was nice seeing my dad in his element with his... Colleagues. His yeah, colleagues, peers, right? Yeah. You know? um, and, and then, you know, wind the clock forward, uh, you know, 10, 20 years, I was an adult and I was watching this show called The, uh, the Soul in the Machine. It was a PBS thing that was about four hours going through, um, going through really the evolution of computing and how it started. And, and you know, they were, all, they were interviewing all these luminaries. And I'm sitting there watching this and going, oh my God, Fred Brooks, that guy was over our house having dinner or we were over in his house in North Carolina. And, and it's, and I started just thinking about it going, oh my God, these people who I just thought were just simply colleagues of my dad, they were really the foundations of, of the computer industry. And it kind of blew me away. Um, and I always kind of vowed that I would do the same thing for my kids. Um, and so I've had a lot of people coming over to my house, you know, Lex Coors, uh, uh, Jim Smith. I mean, I could go on and on with the list of folks sure. just so my kids could see that these are all regular people, but these are also the giants of the world. And it could be you one day, right? Sure. And that was really the... The, the takeaway I, I, I had when I watched that thing is that we're all regular people and it's up to us whether we want to do great things. So uh, had your dad inspired you to get into engineering? Was it something you already knew that you wanted to go down that path? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question because um, I, uh, I never knew I had a choice. It's like my dad was an engineer. <laughs> I was right. interested in whatever he was interested in. You know, we would always tinker around, we'd fix everything. And to this day, if something breaks, I always try to fix it. 
Yourself? Myself. And that was something I learned from my dad. And and in fact, I don't, it's probably before your time, but they had something called Heathkit back then. Uh-huh. Heathkit was, you would get these kits of electronics, diodes and transistors and everything. And my dad was really into music. Um, and so he had to get the best hi-fi, you know, back then we called hi-fi for stereos, right? And, uh, but the problem was you had to put it together. And at that time, and think about this, in 1969, this thing cost $400 coming in pieces. You could get it assembled for $800, which, you know, at that time, an engineer was maybe making $20,000 at most, a senior engineer, right? But more like 15 or 10 or something. And he bought this kit and we spent like nine months literally putting thousands of diodes into boards and building this, yourself and everything. soldering them ourselves one by one. Nice. I, I remember doing it with my dad and, um, he trusts you that much yeah. to let you. Kn- uh, well, he let me actually do some of them. Yeah. But the, the crazy thing was, I remember it wouldn't work. After we did saying. it all right and what so i actually went? found the missing diode or whatever and and i remember it was like such a euphoric feeling of you know troubleshooting and sure. and fixing the problem and so i think ultimately it was just these interactions with my dad he would always give me these little puzzles that were training me on how to think critically, critically. you know, that's it. Uh, I mean, it would be a string with a stick and there was some task you had to do and we'd get them once a week. It was some club he joined to kind of stimulate me to think. And he would always ask me questions. He would never give me answers, which I think is, is, uh, really trained me. And for those that know me, I do ask a lot of questions and I think it all goes back to my dad. He, he would never give me answers. It would always be questions. And it would always be for me to think deeper, think beyond what I'm thinking, and and really try to understand um, uh, what the phenomenon was and how it was caused, and and to think about solutions and come up with solutions. And I love that. And and I, I think there's no greater way as a parent to tell your kids how much you love them than to uh, challenge them yep. with those really complicated questions, and then not rescue them and let them struggle and let them get creative and let them try to figure out how to uh, solve things on their own because I think that's the only place that they could gain confidence, right? Yeah. So your father was empowering you every time, yeah. probably frustrated you sometimes, I'm guessing too, right? But like, dude, I just need the answer every now yeah. and then, right? But yeah, look, Never. But look look what he did, right? Is he knew that it's the steel that sharpens steel, they say. So if he's got a big fat brain and he's he knows the value of that, he of course he'd try to impart that on you and your son and you to your son too, I'm sure. but. Like it, were you, were you an athlete at any time? Did you, were I was you a swimmer? Okay. Yeah, was I, it? I, I swam and my dad was always into swimming, uh, not competitively or anything, but I remember any time we'd go on vacation, he'd be out there in the middle of the ocean, just swimming laps back and forth. So for him, it was always big that, uh, that I swim. And, Good. And so. One of the best I, sports you could do actually. Yeah. And I did swim competitively through high school. Um, You're tall. I mean, like how tall are you actually? I'm not. 5'11"? Yeah, 5'10". Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, that, like, I'm, I'm shrinking. I, all right. I was, I'm like, you look like you could probably have a longer stroke back in the day maybe or something, huh? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't uh, a state champion kind of swimmer. It was, a, but I really enjoyed it. Balance it out. You're an athlete and athlete type of thing. Yeah. What was, uh, when you graduated high school, 
I mean, were you a regular kid? Did you just do four years like the rest of us peasants, yeah. or did you skip yeah. through? Okay, no, no I, I was a I was a normal kid. Uh, you know, uh, so there were some interesting moments. Like I remember in fifth grade, we lived in California in Berkeley for a little bit. And uh, you're asking whether I was normal. Maybe this was the first indication normal, yeah. that, uh, you know, I, I would do well. Um, I remember I had to take this test. My parents are like, you have to take this test and, I'm, and just do your best. And it turned out it was one of these tests to place you into a different school. Oh, like Mensa or something. Yeah, like that, yeah. right. And, um, and the funny thing is, you know, looking back at that, and I remember I failed the test. I failed because my vocabulary wasn't large enough. And, uh, you know, looking back, I mean, I did everything, you know, the math, every part that's always been my strong suit. But the vocabulary, and it turns out the reason is because I grew up bilingual. Yeah, English is your second language. Right? I learned English on the streets. And so I, I don't use big words typically because I never really learned them. You learn your words as a child from your parents. And at home, we always spoke Hungarian. And to this day, I still speak Hungarian with my mom. I got you. Very cool. Did you pass it down to your kids? Did your kids speak it or not? No, no. No, no appetite? Well, it's it's much harder if one parent oh, I got speaks the language and the other doesn't. And honestly, it's probably more, I don't want to blame, actually, as I think about it, I don't want to blame it on, on my wife at the time. Uh, because what happens when you teach someone two languages or multiple languages, it also delays when the person speaks. Um, because you're decoding in your mind, you, you know, as yeah. a child, uh, well, what's going on? There seems to be two different words, and right? And so it tends to delay uh, a child from speaking, not from understanding, but from speaking. And, um, and I realized I would only speak Hungarian with my kids, but they were also learning English at the same time. And I just wanted to communicate with them. And so I aborted speaking Hungarian gotcha. and just started speaking English with them. Yeah, it's a lot of work to teach someone yeah. that, especially but, if- But looking back, it's a mistake. Because a kid can learn as many languages as you expose to them simultaneously. Well, I mean, the beauty is, is, you know, we talked a lot about the fifth industrial revolution and all the things that happened with it. And one of the, you know, the genesis is really to ensure that we have a healthier and more harmonious relationship with machines and technology in our lives. I think one of those examples is like, I'm a guy that has... Like I just started an Instagram, which means I have like zero, like I'm not saying it's a negative number, but I have very few followers on Instagram. And <laughs> and it's okay because I never really used that platform because I didn't see it as something that was gonna benefit me. Like I only focus my time and my cycles on things that I have some control over or are gonna make me better. If I don't have any control over it, or if it's not gonna make me a better person, then I don't waste any time on it. But then I found that I could use the algorithms on social media to find really healthy cooking recipes or great workout ideas or you know, inspirational memes from Sun Tzu or you know, Mark Anthony or something crazy like that, right? But I think technology itself is going to be one of the things that makes it easier for kids to come full circle and learn those languages later in life. And I think technology will help us become more fluid in the way that we could have a greater exchange of ideas if we're speaking the same language. And I think technology, that's another example of how technology will be healthier for us. I, you and I have talked about the, the unintended consequences of advancing technology throughout all their evolutions. 
and some of them have really, really hairy shit. Some of them though, like the, it's Goldilocks, too hot, too cold, then just yeah. right. And I think yeah. the pendulum shifting back to where some of those people that really feared it, because when we saw social media, we were just looking at where it ranked in the cause of death in the United States relative to drunk driving or overdose or whatever else. We just saw it as a negative, right? But now I'm like, hey, if you use it in a healthy way, like everything else, it's good. I think that technology is going to allow your kids and mine to figure out how to, my kids, uh, one of my sons goes to the Citadel. He's going to Spain this summer. And I'm like, you better spread into Spanish by the time you get back. You know, there's no excuse that technology gives you all the cliff notes you need, you know, and you could probably even say it in English and press a button, point it at the person and it converts it for you. Right. So there's no excuse not to start picking up these languages. Don't you agree? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, it brings up another point. I think technology is a great thing if it forces you to expand yourself, right? Like you, you gave a great example of learning a language and learning it much yeah. more rapidly. Yeah. Uh, really wonderful. But I think, and we, we talked about this in the past, there's the ethics part of technology too, right? I mean, I, I, I think technology can make us lazy, right? Uh, and it's, it's okay if we get lazy in doing something because it enables us to do something else to expand ourselves even further. Um, and that's, that's a great thing, but technology also can be addictive oh, for in, sure. a, in a way, or the use of technology, not technology itself, but uh, the use of technology can be addictive. And, and I do believe there needs to be, and, and you know, I've talked about this at various industry forums or meetings is, uh, I think there needs to be an ethics in technology, uh, which is something uh, so that we think about the consequences of every technology before we do it. Before we do it, as opposed to, you know, five years later, we're like, oh my God, we didn't think of that. And now people are, you know, taking advantage of other people or something. I, I, so I do believe um, even, even in this whole world of AI now is that we really, I love what AI can do and how it can solve problems we've never been able to solve before. But at the same time, we have to understand that we need to look at what are the negative things? How can it be used against humanity as opposed to for humanity? So I'm really glad that you covered a lot of those things because let's scratch the paint on some more of that stuff if we can, because you know this industry, like every other industry has its own celebrities. We've talked about how you're one of those and like any celebrity, you know, we, we go through multiple dimensions and the, the optics and how we view them, you know, between idolizing them, demonizing them and humanizing them. And I think that this podcast is to humanize the Titans of industry because this industry is less than 25 years old, let's say, do you agree? And imagine, I mean, if you could imagine how much different we're building data centers we are today than we were two years ago, and that how much more different they'll be in two years from now, right? So, and and what it means for us to be in the fifth industrial revolution and all those things that you talked about, I want to bring it back to the ethics part that you were talking about because I believe that you you establish and adopt and you adopt either self-imposed or some authority having jurisdiction from a regulatory perspective is going to force us to have a means to measure things three or four times before we cut. And that's the ethics that you're talking about so that they have less unintended consequences like pollution and horrible labor shit. I mean, every technology has, I mean, 
you know, in the second industrial revolution, in addition to trains and electricity, we also uh, really brought the Colt revolver mainstream. How many deaths can we contribute to that level of technology? How many lives have been saved because of that level of technology? You know, and, and, and again, it dovetails all the way back into current emerging technologies that have been adopted up to and including social media and how many people have harmed themselves from that, you know? So, and, and I think the ethics part that you're talking about will be adopted when this industry is no longer a niche in its infancy, uh, best kept secret type of industry. When this industry is just as mainstream as every other vertical of industry, when it's a part of the lexicon where they're like, I'm in the automotive industry or energy or oil and gas or finance or healthcare, it needs to be just as prevalent. So that all these kids that are in college today are like, yeah, I could do these things, but I can apply it to a completely different application, which is, in my opinion, our industry grows faster than every other industry because of every other industry. So at some point, it doesn't matter what they're going to do. At the end of the day, whatever they're, they're going to do will rely and require technology, and that technology is going to fall back into a data center. At the end of the day, the data center is the primary route for all industry moving forward. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think so, but I, I hate to talk to constrain the future. Well, uh, the right? constraint is what drives the future. Well, you, you even yeah, said yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but my view is I don't know what's going to be next. I mean, no one ever really knows what the next industry is. And, and perhaps right now the view is, and, and the way I see it is everything that happens in the future, the growth is really about what happens in a data center, but that's, that's saying we're constrained to this planet. Right. I, I, I always, uh, you know, I think about even the simple thing that my son once told me because he, when he was young, always had a dream to go to Mars. And that's driven a lot of his vision on how he actually uh, uh, educates himself. You know, uh, he wants to go into the Air Force because his goal had always been to go to Mars. And that's a step, in, yeah. right, step in the direction and all of that. But, um, it, we actually were, we were pioneering all through history, right? Uh, and, you know, some of it was by oppressing other folks, so maybe it's not a good thing, right? But at the end of the day, the human spirit is about pioneering and going to new new areas of the world. And then ultimately now we've explored the world, a lot of the world, and now it's the oceans. But we will be going to space and then how will that change how technology evolves i mean truly going to mars and and you know i know elon musk of course is very big on on doing that colonizing and, it yep. and and you know i i agree and my son would say isn't it sad that that um uh, in 1973 or whatever year it was that was the last time we went to the moon and it, and you wind the clock forward it's literally 50 years we have not really done any human exploration uh back to the moon and even beyond but we've just been focusing on internal stuff that actually requires us to build data centers because we have new apps to make it easier to order food and do all this stuff um and and certainly a lot of advancements in medicine and i mean so i don't want to kind of give a false sense of of the goodness that's created but where's the human spirit to be going and exploring beyond the boundaries you're you're aware of um and so he's like i i don't understand what's happened to the human spirit where is that pioneering to go past where you've been before and and really understanding 
the the universe, not the world around us, the universe around us. So um, and maybe it, this is his year to find out. You know, I yeah. mean, he's at a v- pivotal point in his life too. So I mean, I'm encouraged to see this lineage of of Bilates that have a proven track record, it sounds like, of becoming overachievers. Hopefully one day, maybe he's someone that's on that mission to well, Mars it, in 20 years from now. Absolutely. And what I'm proud of him is he is asking the questions. Mm-hmm. And, and this goes back to even what my dad always taught me is he would always ask the questions. He would never give the answers. Sure. Because if you give the answers, you are essentially constraining yourself. And I even remember you know, thinking back to my, my dad, um, there were a couple of times he'd ask me a question and he knew the answer. Well, he always knew the answer actually, but I would come up with an answer and he would go, Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. And I remember the euphoric look on his face when I came up with something that That he didn't think of that he didn't think of. And I remember the euphoric feeling that I actually showed my dad a new way to do something. So, wow, that was like, addictive and so i think that's where i learned to ask questions and i now see that in my son and it 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 just gives me hope right um and and you know both my kids my daughter is the same way my daughter what i love about her is she is so empathetic and she is a very vulnerable person which drives humility and all those things you know if and so I see the kids picking up things that I think is important to uh, succeed in the world ahead of us. Yeah, contributors to humanity. Yeah. What? Um. Let's back up back to you because I do want people to understand what the routes looked like back in those days oh, when yeah. you guys were on the you know the Oregon Trail, so to speak. But you uh, you bounced around. It sounds like a little bit of, until you graduated high school. Did you go to a, a university? Did you go? So- yeah, so the the so I'll I'll start from the beginning. I was born in Paris, France, yeah. and I was five months old when I immigrated here. Uh, and you know, I had mentioned that earlier, but for the most part, I lived in uh, Yorktown Heights, New York. That's most of my schooling from kindergarten to um, uh, to well, I stayed in New York even when you include college, but. Uh, Yorktown High School was where I, f- where I graduated, graduated. right? Um, however, during that period, you know, my dad was always interested in, in everything beyond what he was working on. He, he liked to disrupt his life and the family's life, and we, he would take sabbaticals. One of the sabbaticals was in California, in Berkeley, and so he, uh, he helped start the uh, software engineering program in Berkeley um, in 1971. Uh, And so he taught there. And so we lived in a place called Albany, California, which is right next to Berkeley. Um, Wonderful experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, Then we moved back to Yorktown in the same home. We would always, uh, um, uh, we would always rent, rent it out while we were gone. And, uh, and then in 1973, he took another sabbatical, and it was to work with an ex-IBM colleague who was now a professor at Imperial College to do research. And I don't remember, it might have been in graphics, because my dad, uh, yeah, that's what it was. My dad was pissed off at IBM because he wanted to work on this new thing called graphics, and they really weren't getting sponsorships. So he went to Imperial College to 
work in the graphics area, I, I think, as the story goes. He just wanted to learn it. Yeah. He's, he's had this need to know it. He, he, he always wanted to be on the next thing. And, yeah. and I, I actually think that might be in our genetic code. Sure. Uh, he never liked to work on what someone else already was working on. It was always new spaces. And so I lived in London for a little bit, which was awesome. Was this whole time your father was at IBM the whole time? And he yeah. would just move, move for sabbaticals? sabbaticals? Yeah. How often did you get to take a sabbatical back in those days? Like every five years? Well, well, no, it was, sabbaticals were different. Like today you're given a sabbatical, like I had a sabbatical at Microsoft. Um, what is it? It's just like three months off. It's three months off. But back then you could apply for a sabbatical because you want to teach or you want to do something and you can go away for a year or two. So it was, um, you don't get paid, yeah. right? The sabbaticals now you get paid. You just take time off and then you come back whenever you're ready. Um, and being he was in a research environment, that was, I think, also easier to do. And it was highly valued in the research uh, arena because you're going to a university or something like that, which you come back and you bring new, new ideas and so on. So that was in the heyday, I think, of IBM research. Um, but, but then, you know, we got back and I went to Yorktown High School. Then from there, uh, went, oh, here's an interesting story. For those of you that know me, I'm a car person. And um, uh, so I had a, a car in my high school year that I have that car now in my garage. Exact same car? It's the identical okay. car, but not the same car, right? Uh, I've, it's optioned identically to what we had, and I found it in Delaware. I bought the car for my dad for uh, Christmas back in, uh, what was it, four years ago in 2019 before he passed, and just to drive him around. Uh, like a piece of history? A piece of history kind of thing. But what kind of car is it? It's your... a 19, uh, Cornet 440 Dodge, 1965. I remember that car when my dad drove it up down the driveway when he picked it up uh, back when I was four years old. Really? Hard to believe, yeah. But but anyway, um, uh, in my senior year, some uh, uh, one of the the people I, I was, I was going to say her name, but you know, maybe it's not something she wants to be remembered by backed out of her parking spot and backed right into the side door of my car. And that was in the late seventies. And being, it was a Chrysler Chrysler was going through a big, uh, uh, like reorganization. That's right. And so they had no inventory. They just got rid of their inventory. It was, it was, uh, costing them a lot of money to hold inventory, uh, they were really doing significant cost reductions. So there was no door for my car anywhere. And even junkyards, we couldn't find them. So I was deciding, now wind the clock forward a few months when I was looking at schools, I wanted to go to RPI and my parents being Hungarian immigrants wanted me to go to Cornell because it's an Ivy League. RPI is not an Ivy Rochester League. Rochester Polytechnic Institute. Uh, Rensselaer. Rensselaer in Troy, okay. New York. Yeah. And... um and anyway, uh, and they want I, you to go to Ivy League instead. Yeah, it's just the classic uh, immigrants. Sure, you know that's what they valued and that's what sure. they heard about. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to RPI. And so they're like, all right, well, how about we go up to Cornell one more time? And I'm like, all right, but I know I'm I'm going to go to RPI. Um, and so we're driving up, and keep in mind, I'm driving this car with a bashed in door 
and I couldn't even get out of that door. I always have to get out of the other side of the car, and I love that car. And as we're driving up, I think, Route 96, about 10 miles outside of uh, Ithaca, I look to the side, and there's this big old junkyard going up the side of the hill. That's my doors. And, and I'm like looking at it going, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if they have a door. And then we kept driving to Cornell. We looked around, and I'm like, Tell my parents, I want to go to RPI. I, this is not connecting with me. And so uh, on the drive back, I'm, I'm just telling them, yeah, it's going to be RPI. And then we go past that junkyard. I go, hey, wait a minute. Can we just stop? I want to see if they have a door for my car. And I go into the, the junkyard and, and talk to the guy. He goes, well, I think all the way up at the top, that's where we have our 65 Mopar Mopar cars. And I'm like, okay. And I go up this hill and at the top, because I have a two door hardtop, which is kind of a unique car and the door is much longer. They had the freaking door for my car. And um, I'm like, this is a sign. I took that door off. You know, we, my dad always, back then, you know, cars, you always had tools in your cars. Uh, in case something happened to your car, you could get it running. And so I took those tools, took the door off, put it in the trunk because we had big trunks back then. Um, and I told them, you know what? I'm going to Cornell. I'm going to Cornell. And so the funny thing is, even with my first job, uh, when I was interviewing um, at IBM, they asked me, so why'd you go to Cornell? And, you know, I'm sure they're like, well, it's a diverse school. It's this, it's that, you know, and it's, it's this kind of Ivy League and whatever. I go, well... Um, I got a door. I, I, they had a junkyard there for my car. <laughs> and so that's been my answer. And, and they hired me. I couldn't believe it. They hired me. And so that was my first job. It was IBM. Get out. So what, yeah. on, what did you study when you were at Cornell? I was uh, mechanical engineering. Got it. And then what did you want to do? Did you have, uh, I mean, you went to IBM, your father was probably there, I'm guessing, but did you want to be a mechanical engineer on cars, like design the next NASCAR type of thing? I mean, where were you going with your brain? So, oh, that's, that makes me think back of why I landed where I did. So I actually uh, started as electrical engineer. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I knew it was engineering, but it seemed like electrical engineers at the time were making more money. So I started with that in mind. And then um, we, we had uh, a digital class I had to take and it was not intuitive. So I'm like, Oh, screw this. I, I, I don't, I don't get this. Even the lines go into yeah. a box. doesn't make sense to me. And um, then I went, I'm like, okay, I talked to my dad, computer science. He's, it's the up and coming thing. He says, that's what you should go into. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go into that. And while I did some cool coding back then, um, really wasn't intuitive, right? And so I just looked back. One of the things I would always be wrenching on cars in high school with my buddies. And, you know, we had jalopies and sure. always keeping them running and everything. Because in those days you could. That's you how could. you could fix any car with yeah. a toolkit. Yeah. I mean, we worked on, we'd get a Corvair for 50 bucks. We'd work on it and then we'd sell it for 500 and thought, you know, wow, man, we're good at this stuff. So, um, but working with my hands on mechanical stuff was just so intuitive. It's, it, it, to this day, anything mechanical, I think I can fix given time and the right tools. Um, 
And so I just decided to go to mechanical engineering. And then I had a co-op job at IBM. It was actually one of my dad's old Hungarian friends. He got me the, the job, which just goes to show it's always good to know people. Networks matter. Yeah. And um, uh, it was, I worked on heat transfer uh, problems for um, various kind of computers. Some of them mainframes, some of them were other kinds. And I really was enjoying the concept of heat transfer. It, that was a really intuitive thing in fluid dynamics. Um, and to this day, I, I look back at that and that's really what started it for me. And then after I graduated from uh, Cornell, I got a job at a different IBM location um, doing heat transfer and cooling for their mid-range computers at the time. And so, um, that's what led me there. And then during that period, while I worked for IBM, I went back uh, part-time to get my master's at RPI. RPI. Yeah, okay. which was, and that was one of the reasons I worked at Kingston, New York. It was only 60 miles from RPI. And I was able to- Take the train or something? Uh, no, I drove. Oh, I drove okay. up and there was a couple of us that would went on the program together. Still had that same car with a new door? Uh, yeah. I, that's, <laughs> was it the same color? Every well, the 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 door I found in the junkyard, yeah. uh, that had to be painted. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that had to be painted. So so anyway, um, yeah, and so that's what got me uh, ultimately to get another degree at RPI, which in, was my dream. So in, you, in, in in fluid dynamics, no shit. Okay, so, so I'm a fluid dynamicist. Okay, so but you also, I mean, like you were telling me about the stuff that you were doing at TI. You know, you're basically. Tony Stark, you know, I was joking about oh, that, yeah, but yeah. like walk me through from you were at IBM and then you got into fluid dynamics and then help us all understand like how someone goes from that. Cause that seems like something that anybody with regular genes has the ability to do as long as they're willing to work hard, right? Is go to a decent school and then yeah. go get a good job at a good yep. company that teaches yep. you shit and then go get another degree on top of that. Especially if it's something that's intuitive and it's something that you're passionate about. It sounds like it's something that you're definitely passionate about. Walk us through how that goes from, because your father was an aeronautical engineer and got into software, right? And is a pioneer in software. Mm -hmm. And and his son is a mechanical engineer, specifically in fluid dynamics, and he's getting into all forms yep. of advanced technology yep. now, yep. right? So walk us through that gap, because that's, I mean, this industry, I wonder at what point it was in which you were getting into the birth of technology's really huge explosion, right? Because 69 was the beginning of the third industrial revolution and we were creating technology that was AI. We were, we had technology strong enough to genetically map our DNA. We were putting all kinds of things in space. That was a huge explosion of not only technology, but technology that allowed us to get things that helped all of humanity and society, such as insulin and, and penicillin and other medicines, I'm sure, right? So that's a lot of explosion going on. And you have a big old brain. How did you figure out that that's? What, well, yeah, and and you seem pretty curious on things. Yeah, so so there were a lot of missteps along the way too. I don't know if people talk about. Let's hear it, man. Steps. You're a human, after right? All. Um, so, uh, and I had people guiding me in the right direction. Uh, even when I went to school, my first year at Cornell, I I was on probation. Oh, I almost, it. you know, I. In high school, I didn't have to study, and I was in all the advanced classes. They were all a piece of cake for me, and I did well. But then all of a sudden, you go to Cornell, and everyone's smart, smart, yeah. and 
frankly, most of them were smarter than me. And I really struggled. I really struggled. And I remember coming back uh, after my first year and telling my dad, you know, I think I want to drop out. Oh, and you had the courage to say that to I your did. dad? I, I said, and he goes, well, what are you going to do? I said, I want to be a mechanic because, of course, I had yeah, been yeah. wrenching with my buddies for the past four years in, in high school. And uh, he's like, okay. And, you know, I was kind of surprised. He was kind of nonchalant about it, right? And he goes, all right, so what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to be a mechanic. I really enjoy that. It's very intuitive, right? Because I just told you I was struggling with electrical engineering and then software. It wasn't intuitive for me. He goes, all right, listen, I'm going to make you a deal. I'm going to pay for your tuition. I want you to graduate. I'm not, I don't really care if you don't do well, but at the end of the four years, you will have a degree. And you, at that point, can decide whether you want to be a mechanic or whether you want to be an engineer because he goes life is all about options and in your life you should always work to have multiple options so you have choice you know this is from someone who had the choice to leave a country and a language he knows to come somewhere else and uh and it really hit me and you know in my life there's few places where all of a sudden you have these epiphanies and boom you, you change from that point forward it completely changed me that discussion there was no anger there was no it was just pure logic he used on me and totally manipulated me to staying in school and of course i've never looked back sure now i still have hobbies on working on cars in fact i'm even to this day uh, uh you know i've invested in a junkyard and so I'm part owner of a, of a dismantling business um, because I have this obsession with the automotive sector. Um, but I never really looked back. So I went to IBM. I got a great job there. I enjoyed it. Um, and during that time, my folks moved back from Japan. Um, they were living there for a few years, but they moved to Texas. And my dad started this company helped start this company called Microelectronics Corporation. He was one of the founders there with a, a guy called um, Admiral Inman, Bobby Inman, who's- Retired uh, Admiral, I'm guessing. Yes, he was. And, uh, <laughs> and it was this research consortium. My dad was into research, so he moved to Austin. And in fact, the interesting thing about that to kind of sidetrack is he's really one of the guys that in Austin, here in Austin, where we are right now, um, really started the whole technology boom the incubators because like the jj pickle foundation like johnson did a lot for technology in texas you know president johnson in terms of making sure nasa's headquarters is here and stuff but there's a ut has some incredible research centers i mean the rail gun was built from there there's a lot of and so and so he actually had been a visiting professor in austin so so he had these ties here and then when he had this opportunity that's what got our family to Texas. And I'm looking at it, I'm up in New York and I come down here and the weather's always great. And I hated driving up there because salt and the cars would rust. Sure. And, and I'm like, wow, I'm really liking Texas. But you were in Austin, not Dallas. Well, I was in New York at okay. the time working. Okay. But he and my mother moved here and, and I'd come visit and I'm like, you know, I kind of like Texas. I like the weather. 
It's really nice. It's Except for the good summer. Life. There's a yeah. couple months But even back then, the summers were better. Okay. And, um, and anyway, uh, so that's what brought him here. And, and I'm, like, I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to move to Texas. And so I interviewed a few jobs in Austin. I didn't uh, really like it, uh, you know, the jobs. But I got this great offer um, from um, TI. I had just finished my master's degree at IBM. And of course, IBM wouldn't, this was the other motivator is IBM didn't increase my pay. So back then, to give you a feel what an engineer was making, in 1983, um, my salary was just under 25000 which, you know, I look back, I'm like, wow, it's just amazing. Uh, and I was offered, TI offered me, because of my degree, uh, like, $10,000 more or something yeah, like it was that. No -brainer that. It was a no brainer. And so I came to Texas Instruments and I worked for the defense sector. Um, and that is where um, I really cut my teeth. Oh, but before I go there, I have to say two other things advice my dad gave me. He said, two things you need to uh, know about your career. He was always like this, I don't know, this genius he'd say these single things and it would change my life he goes um always nourish your network he goes not just within a company but outside of a company if you do that you will always have job security your career will always grow because it's always about it's that an community it's yep. an ecosystem right so so he would always um tell me that's number one uh and number two Minimize your time with bad managers and maximize your time with good managers. And we were talking a little bit about that on the drive in. And, um, and so he said, those are two things you should always do in your career and you will be fine. And so, um, you know, I think about that all the time and I think about this community, uh, that's still with me. I still keep in touch with the people and those people that I keep in touch with in my years at IBM have still played a pivotal role in my development even today. You know, a guy that um, I think very highly of, he's a great friend. Uh, he came into IBM, uh, Dirigi Aganoffer. He's a professor at UT Arlington now, but for years he was at IBM and he was brought in uh, to really start growing uh, the computational fluid dynamics program at IBM. And that really played a key role when I really looked. That was the beginning. In the early 80s, it was the beginning for CFD. You know, uh, At that time, there weren't all these great visualization tools. We were actually working in integer space, and we'd have to take a, a square volume that's made up of a bunch of elements and then map it over into another space so that it would be solved um, you know, the Navier-Stokes equations and all these things were solved with these tools. And then over the years, those things got better. And so now when I came to TI, we were actually building a lot of these early tools, these finite element tools at TI so we can solve problems like radiation heat transfer, um, you know, how to design uh, the nose of a, of, a, of a missile and all these really cool problems. and. It was really TI, well, at IBM, I was almost like just a technician. Um, and oh, I have to add another thing that it reminded me. And I missed at that time, this is one of those missteps where 
PCs were just evolving back then. And I remember there's a guy that got hired in at the same time as me, and he's like totally into these PCs and doing this thing, Lotus One Two Three. I'm like, what is that? That's a freaking game. What do you? And he go. You got to work on the real computers, the big ones. But he was obsessed about these little PC things that came around. I'm like, what a waste. This is the good stuff. And sure enough, that was one of the biggest mistakes. Yeah, that model I was, flipped. Yeah, a bit, yeah didn't it? That, that was like all of a sudden that exploded. Yes, and you know, and he exploded with it. And and I'm still working on this old old mainframe mainframe technology, which of course pretty much became irrelevant. Uh, you know, a, a decade later, although it's now rolling back. I was like, it's all still. Yeah, yeah. So, but but anyway, um, and so you know, that's the other thing that I learned that at IBM is. If there's something new that you don't understand, get into it, right? Yeah. As as opposed to um, uh, just because you're comfortable with what you're working on, and you you you'll miss opportunities. And so there's always lessons like that, and it's the missteps are okay if you learn something. The missteps yeah. are bad if you do it again. If you do it again, because you right? didn't learn the first time. Yeah, right. you didn't learn the first time. So so anyway, so I ended up working at TI, and I worked on. F-18, uh, I worked on some of the helicopter uh, avionics, um, tanks, I worked on natural convection. Was any of that exciting for you? Oh, I mean, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable. It, Interesting it, shit. Do you ever hit the generals and stuff that'd come in and be like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And in fact, it's funny you bring that up because um, I, uh, I had this absolute fear of talking in public. Absolute fear. Um, and, uh, Whenever we had to give a presentation of our work to the generals that would come in. Oh, you definitely had to stand in front of them. Yeah. And it was absolutely horrific for me. I, if I knew we had- a pretty tough audience. Yeah. That's a tough audience. And, sure. and they were actually really great in the end. I oh, really? I, 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 but I remember that, um, and so I tell this to my kids too, it's, it's okay to be afraid to speak in public. I go, I was the same way. And- I would literally, if the if we had a meeting with a, a review with a general, you know, two months from now, I literally would have a calendar there. You're and, prepping, and I'd be crossing off, going, "Okay, it's sixty days before I die." <laughs> it, I mean, literally for me, it was you hated like that much. I hated it. I hated it. And then I realized, as I did it more and more, I'm like, so, "God, yeah. it's great that general is asking me questions, and I have a freaking answer each time. I'm the expert. What am I so afraid of?" Right. And, and it really, during that period, I was really starting to get a little bit more comfortable. And while I was at TI, I also was getting my business degree. And there too, we were doing a lot of presentations. Uh, I was going to UT uh, Dallas. And um, those really, both those things really helped me become a much better communicator and actually have confidence in myself that, hey, if you're the expert, the reason you're presenting is generally you are the expert and that's why you've been asked to talk. Yeah. So what are you afraid of? Yeah, you're the expert. You're the expert. No one knows more than you. No one knows more than you, right? And um, and so I, I remember that being a really important part of my development during my TI days. But during your TI days, did you have like a strong leader or a, did you were you lucky to work for, I know at IBM, you probably were surrounded by brilliance because your father was probably a legend there too, right? But when you... I believe that leadership is a big, I look at like, uh, this is Austin, Texas, and you have, um, who was his name? Drew Brees went to high school right down the street. 
And then he went to the Chargers when he got out of college and he didn't do so well. And he, I think based on what I've been told, you know, he thought about not even playing. Then he went to a different team, yeah, different leaders, and he became an MV, yeah. you know, Super Bowl MVP. Maximize your time with great leaders, yeah. What your father was spot on, right? So my thing is, is were there times in this career that you had in which, because normally we leave because of the pain or the constraint, right? Like, I think that's something that you had even mentioned, the pain of having a bad leadership or the constraint of not being able to grow. Were you able to have strong leaders at TI? I or, was. Yeah? Yeah, there was a, there was a man, uh, Don Price. He was my first boss at TI. Uh, he was a, you know, big, burly Texan kind of guy, you know, uh, grew up in the Dallas area, I think. Um, uh, and, but he was also a professor at SMU and, and then he came to TI, uh, and he was a heat transfer guy and many of the people, um, uh, that are in heat transfer probably would know him, particularly those that in that era. Um, and what I remember is I would come in work on a project, I'd solve the problem, and he goes, okay, now I want you to write a report. Okay, this is the professor coming out, right? It's like, I got the answer, can I just move on to the, no, you're gonna write a report. He would make me write a report, and I'd do my first draft, and it would be multiple pages, and it would have to be, you know, why I did it. I mean, it was, you know, yeah. the whole thing, hypothesis, uh, procedure, kind of, you know. white paper, it sounds like, I, yeah. I have to write one of these. and. Um, I'm like, okay. And I'm real proud of what I wrote at the end. And I'm like, oh, I'm glad he made me do this. And so I gave it to him and then I got it back covered with red. Everything's edited. You did this wrong. This, you need to put this here. And, you know, it was like the most deflating thing, uh, that I ever experienced. Um, it pretty much said, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And I went back and I redrafted it. Okay, I got fewer red marks. And I went through like six iterations with this guy and I was hating him. I was like, I gotta get away from this guy as soon as possible um, because this is a waste of time. Looking back now, and I even told him this later after I wasn't working for him, he was transformational in terms of me being an engineer. He actually made me think logically through the steps of everything I did and making me write about it made me very deliberate about thinking about everything I did moving forward and even capturing those steps. Um, and you know, uh, Don was just an incredible person. He, you know, and then he also did a lot of stuff externally and he got me writing reports and presenting in conferences. So when I really look at it, I think Don was pivotal in my development as not just an engineer, but a way to communicate my thoughts um, and then even how to develop and nourish a network outside of where I worked. So, you know, he was a key piece in developing that for me. So Don was absolutely just uh, an amazing, amazing human being. Uh, but it sounds like it, you know, I, I, I'm always inspired by these stories that people share with me because it sounds like everything that you gained from that 
and what the impact that it is that he made in your life came from being, he made you uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Good leaders will do that. They'll make oh, you uncomfortable. He, I mean, I still think back to him and, oh God, he really was life changing. A lot of the, when you have leaders in those, in those days, the stoicism of man was completely different and they were not there to be your friends. They were there to be your yeah. leaders yeah. and they didn't care if you liked them. It was about whether or not you respected them. And, uh, I was raised, I was born and raised on military bases my whole life, right? And I've always been around those that were like, they're not people you'd go to to feel better. There were places and people you'd go visit to get better. And that normally never comes when I feel good. You know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm always in a state of frustration Absolutely. and pain and suffering, yeah. but it's always a great place to be from, just a shitty place to be, you know? So some of the biggest, you know, the most profound changes in your life probably came through, doesn't have to be trauma, you know, but some sort of pain. Would you agree? Yeah, ab absolutely. And if you really look, it's all about intent versus impact, right? If you think about it, Don's intent wasn't to make me feel bad. He was governing on that right intent. Yeah. He had the right intent, right? And the problem is sometimes we're misaligned on intent versus impact. And Don's intent, looking back, he became a great friend. Um, and uh, Out of respect. Yeah. Not because you didn't like him at the time, right? I'm sure you didn't like him. No, but we became great friends. He became a phenomenal mentor for me all sure. along my journey, even after I left TI. Um, and so I just, um, yeah, I just, I look back and, you know, unfortunately a lot of these great mentors you have along the way have passed, but what's the best legacy they could leave behind is through the through next you. generation, right? And what you're able to do. Right. So to that end, uh, you're at TI. It sounds like you had some fun. You were oh, learning how to be- amazing work. I mean, I-, I how, now, how old were you then? Uh, uh, mid 20s? Let's see, I was 25 yeah. to, uh, I was there um, uh, nine years. Oh, wow. And we worked on crazy stuff. Uh, I, I worked on the kinetic energy missile and it was this vehicle that would carry like 10 of these things. I'm sure I could talk about it. So. Sure. Uh, you it's know, 30 years now. ago, yeah. it's all obsolete stuff. But um, I remember going out to White Sands missile range and we would, you know, be setting things up. And the whole point was that they were going to demonstrate that this thing going at Mach 5 could penetrate any armor and any tank. And so you're out there in the missile range setting up and taking measurements. And uh, I was never there for when they actually shot it, which was a real bummer, uh, but I'd be going out there to prep it and, and get all the instrumentation ready for it. You know, we would model it. The reason we do all the instrumentation, of course, is first we would always model our work using these new tools called fight element analysis or computational fluid dynamics. Um, and so we would um, do all that modeling, predict temperatures and things like that. Uh, what I was working on for that particular platform was the guidance system. Uh, and we were jointly doing it with LTV at the time. And it was always about the infrared spectrum is what you, we would work in. So we would have germanium lenses, not clear visible lenses. Um, and my job, generally speaking, was always to look at all these optical elements. You would have maybe, you know, half a dozen to a dozen optical elements mounted in this structure. And because uh, temperature, not only were we trying to think, keep things cool, but we were trying to um, 
keep it the same temperature because if there were any gradients through the optical path, it would distort. And so where it's looking is act, you would, the, it would miss the target because it would, the bore sight would slightly shift as the thing oh, kind of flexed a little because totally of the different gradients, right? And so my job was to keep, design a system that would keep it so it's uniform temperature or at least predictable and doesn't change. So it's always pointing in the same direction. And it was really cool work because, you know, in, in military conditions, you know, out in the desert and all these things, there's all sorts of gradients that are caused. And our job was to keep those things uniform. It was a phenomenal engineering problems that we were working on. That's awesome. Yeah. That's exciting. I, I loved it. I loved it. When when you left TI, where'd you go? So um, I was recruited. I, I wasn't actually looking to leave, um, but I was recruited um, by Convex Computers. They built supercomputers. Okay. Uh, Convex Computers back then, and I actually used Convex Computers uh, when I was at TI to do our finite element analysis. They were air-cooled supercomputers, or um, back then, almost all of them were liquid-cooled, but this startup uh, was building air-cooled versions of them, low, lower cost, right? What, what were they doing here in Texas? Yeah, uh, okay. in, in, in Dallas. Gotcha. Which is where I was at TI, and so I, um, I essentially went there uh, because they looked like a fun bunch, and it was startup mentality. Uh, it had 500 people by then and it had been around for a while, maybe, uh, six, seven years or something. Um, it was a lot of fun, but they were having problems because their processor was getting too hot. And, uh, you know, I had been working on systems that had liquid cooling. I mean, in, in the TI days, it was all about liquid cooling and like I said, radiation, and we were really doing exotic stuff. So here they have a little chip that's 50 watts. They're worried it's gonna go to 60 and they don't know how to cool it. And so um, they recruited me because I really understood heat transfer all because of the great work I did at TI. So it really kind of set the stage there. Now in that time too, were you making any patents for anything? No. Okay. No. Uh, were you a PE at that point or were, did you I ever? was engineer in training. EIT? See, when did I do the, I did my PE exam while at TI. So I became a PE while at TI. Gotcha. Um, and uh, let's see. So, um, so I went to this place called Convex Computers and um, the day I got there, the guys are going, why'd you come here? We're about to go out of business. I'm like, you should have told me that before I left this great job. And so I'm thinking, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to look for another job soon because it was really struggling at that time. I think primarily because of the PC industry, you know, everything was becoming more distributed. And this was in uh, 95. I would say it sounds like mid 90s, like Gateway yeah. was around. Yeah. Was a and, it, and so, so these supercomputers uh, were not really... That, being adopted like and, and especially not from a smaller company right um and so uh, i'm like oh my god and then five months later hp announced that they were going to acquire convex to build their high end to finish out their line because hp was building mostly smaller computers and so we came in and and we were a good addition to their portfolio and we provided the high-end computing platforms no for sure. um for who who were for the hp 
Okay, but you were making a product for HP to sell, not for them to use. I'm sure it's probably. Oh no, it was it was to to actually uh, build the product so they could compete against the IBMs. Yes, and the Suns, and you know, and the and yeah. really all the, the the competitors at the time because HP did not have a good complete portfolio of of. They were buying like Compaq. They were yeah. buying. They, they were, yeah, that happened in two uh, about six years later. Right. Okay. Oh yeah. So like, uh, what was the application? Was it in the finance industry? Like wh who was buying this technology that, uh, it was oil industry, was. um, finance, anyone that needed, um, centralized computing. And so for HP, it was really at that point became kind of, you know, a mix what customers would buy. And that's why they had to get the, the high end because, a customer may buy one or two of these things and then buy all the other ones that are integrated, you know, the smaller workstations and things like that back then, the PCs. Who were the architects, sort of speak, back in those days that were trying to figure out how they were going to design for a solution if you, had a, if you had a requirement set that someone had to solve for from an IT perspective? But somehow, I mean, I, I guess in future proofing in those days wasn't what they were thinking about because they didn't understand how fast things would evolve or grow. But like, oh, certainly they didn't. I mean, so what were you seeing back in those days? People were just kind of like bandied here, bandied there, bandied there. I, I, yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, well, certainly, I was there's some strategy, industry. right? Because they 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 are looking at buying a, the uh, you know create a high end division for HP. Convex became their high end division. Right, so there were some strategic aspects realizing that there needs to be some broader thing architected. But at that time, the data centers were chaos in the 90s. What were they back in those days? Because oh, it was Savis and ex Exodus. I yeah. mean, who all was oh, around? Well, yeah, Exodus in the late, in the mid 90s, I don't even think Exodus was around yet, right? In fact, most of the data centers were enterprise. Okay. Right, and so it was on-prem. Yeah. And, um, I remember uh, Chris Malone and I, we would be, well, let me just say what actually got us there in the first place. So here we were building these high-end computers and, you know, the as my dad has always taught me about is always be curious beyond the boundaries you're responsible for. I would, uh, I would start looking at these huge, you know, they were refrigerator-sized servers. It was Half Dome. It was the server uh, we were shipping at the time. We weren't thinking about how does this impact the customer's environment, and some of the customers that's were, their problem. They're just buying yeah, it. Yeah, it, it was back then. The industry was throw it over the fence, put it in the closet, and they, and they would put it somewhere. And so um, we started going around to um, uh, customers. Uh, you know, Chris and I, we've developed these best practices. Um, like, for, how are you using these? You're trying yeah. to figure out how they were doing them, and the stuff we saw. It was laughable. Chris and I had such a good time. We traveled all over the world to many data centers. Sometimes I would go by myself. Sometimes he would go by himself. Sometimes we would go together. Um, the the uh, account teams really liked having us, and we developed like the 10 best practices of good data center design. And it was things like hot aisle, cold aisle, um, uh, you know, how to design your floor tiles. I mean, back then it was so basic. I mean, I'm sure. There wasn't an uptime that defined a standard or a criterion to that standard of any kind? Not yet? That, not not yet, right? It was yeah. a wild west. How did you know what you were doing was the right thing to do? I had no idea. You just do it. Okay. Right? I Plug mean, it in, do a CFD model on but, it. But you go and you see these customers and they have raised floors that are four inches high and they're having 
problem with distributing air and we're looking at it going, okay, that's another best practice. Let's make sure it's 12 inches. It's, you know, something else. Right. And, uh, and so we developed these things and we went around all over the world looking at these data centers and they were horrible. You know, people were having hot racks blown into the front of other racks. I mean, it was absolute chaos. I remember those days. Yeah. Two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Even in 2000 still. Yeah. They were right? still ugly. They were still ugly. Right. Um, and I remember in 2000, we were still going around and, um, uh, so, so that was a, a fun thing we were doing for a while. Uh, and I'll get back to that because there's other stuff happening, which was really fascinating to me was I really wanted to, we were talking about how many watts per square foot a data center could handle and it's pitiful and you know looking at it i'm like there's got to be a better way and so i started proposing taking part of our enterprise data center in convex and building walls around like i don't remember the exact size but it was maybe like a 30 by 30 uh data center that i could build and put um Contained. 18 racks in them with heaters so that I can go in and test what chain these best practices that we came up with would, how much impact would it have if you did it the right way? Because people in general were like, well, we don't know if that makes a difference. And I had no way of telling them, well, if you do hot aisle, cold aisle, it's going to be, um, you're going to have X amount better performance. We had no clue. And so we tried to model it and, you know, the modeling, there's so many assumptions you make. And I'm like, I want to build this damn thing. And so you're like a design verification test now. You're like trying to figure out how to make it break or fail. Well, I, I wanted to see if it would even work. And then on top of that, at the same time, I was meeting with Ericsson and they had this overhead cooling system that was natural convection cooling for switch rooms. And I'm looking at it going, wow, this might be a good solution for our Superdome platform. So we were really concerned about whether customers could handle the density of a Superdome platform. And so I'm looking at it going, if I put a fan on that damn thing, a few fans, and force the air where it sucks the hot air in and blows it down into the uh, cold aisle, I could really make, and then it's a short path for the air. It just keeps looping around from behind the rack up to the ceiling down and continue this stuff. And I could really prove what it is that freaking density I can do. And then I could prove how much that helps. I could prove how much hot aisle, cold aisle helps because I have all these uh, 18 racks, three rows of six with heaters in them. I mean, this is the rudimentary stuff we were looking to do at the time. And I had this uh, uh, lab manager at the time. I went to him and he's he's like, ah, no. I go, it'll cost about a million and a half to build this. And I think we'll learn so much and we could use it for the customers. Uh, no, no. And then the guy soon after that, it was clear he was not passionate because it looks like he had his foot out the door. And another guy, another director for the lab came in. And I proposed the same thing. And again, this is the lab that does all the high-end computing. They were just interested in building the platforms. And he lasted about another year. And uh, and by the way, that's when my patenting started because then I was looking to patent this overhead idea that we had. And then the, uh, the next guy was Paul Perez. Paul Perez, uh, 
I love the guy to this day. We're still friends. And I think he's one of the CTOs at Dell now. Um, he, um, he gets announced as the new lab manager three days into the job. I I'm there. I go into his office, which this just goes to show the first time you get rejected on an idea. Don't give up. Right. right. This was another thing I learned. And I go into Paul, I say, look, this is what I want to do. And I'll never forget this to this day. And I, I, I love him dearly. And I always quote what he said at that point. He goes, is this disruptive? I go, yeah. And he goes, let's do it. <laughs> that's all I needed to know. That's all he needed to know. And uh, I am, you know, you talk about someone who has a crush for a lifetime on someone. That just made me love him. And I, I just love the guy to this day. You know, you talk about people that changed your, that influenced you yeah. or changed or critical, critical to your career. Paul was critical to the, my career. And so we built the lab, we spent the money, um, we tested everything out. We proved that going from hot aisle or, you know, chaotic designs with everything lined up the same way. Um, if you go hot aisle, cold aisle, we could double the density that we could cool by just simply going hot aisle, cold aisle, which was huge. We were able to do 10X the cooling with overhead cooling, which by the way, that division of Ericsson, which we were patenting this with jointly, actually sold that division to Emerson. And so if you look at the XDO product line, I actually have Emerson patents while I was at HP because that XDO product line is the basis that of what this, you were doing, of what we were doing at the time. So, you know, it's all interconnected somehow. And, and so we, you know, we still laugh about that. You have the, like a, you're, you have a frame of that in your office or something. I, I have it in a box now. Isn't that terrible? No, nah, but that's kind of, cool. <laughs> but I have a, I do have a plaque from Emerson. Um, and I have a HP version of it too, since we both own the patent collectively. So uh, when does that patent expire? How long are those patents normally good? Oh, I'm for? sure they've expired already. Oh, I got you. And because it's what that was like in late night. Well, it takes a few years to get the patent. So it's probably around 2000 or so. That's kind of cool. And um, anyway, but so we were really into trying to figure out performance of data centers. And, and, you know, at the same time, we're doing these trips all over the world, helping customers. And now we're showing them the data that we found with this, test set up and, um, and how they could improve their pitiful little data centers. Some of them are, you know, a thousand square feet. And I mean, the stories we have could in itself be, uh, uh, you know, it would be great to have the stories with Chris jointly as to talk about some of the things that we saw. It was, uh, it was unbelievable. And so the opportunity for becoming an expert at the time was so immense because everyone was just building these things. They had their own facilities, guys, building a room so they could do this, but there was no standard or anything. And um, so at the same time, we had no standards within HP. You know, and I remember we were trying to agree. It was the Wild West. It was, it was the Wild West. You know, you could have one server division and another server division designing to different specifications. And, you know, I'm looking at all this stuff going, hey, guys, we need to come up with a common specification. Well, well, our customers have this. They're all the same freaking customers. And they all have different temperature ranges, different power quality requirements and all of this. And I was trying to get that standardized inside of HP. And it was so hard. 
Um, and no one agreed where density would go and everyone had their own perspective. And so um, I, I started looking around on the outside of, you know, are there any standards that I could use? So that way there's no argument. Well, my customer's this way. Well, my customer's that way. They're all the same. They're all the same. So are there standards out there? And so I went to this meeting and I think this was in the late nineties, um, host, hosted by the Uptime Institute. I think they invited me or I, I forgot how it happened, but the net result was I went to this Uptime Institute conference or uh, workshop that you were invited in to talk about your platforms or whatever your strategies are. And Uptime Institute members at that time was a very tight 50 or so companies that pay into, you know, Ken Brill's organization and they meet annually and they invite some uh, uh, suppliers in to give their pitch. And I gave the pitch that Chris and I had started giving to all the data centers um, that we would visit. I gave that pitch at that conference, but which was all great. And, and some people learned from it. Some people may have already been doing some of these things, but, um, I remember after it though, or, or they also let us sit through their standard, uh, I forgot what they called it, but it was their power distribution requirement of what they wanted. They created this survey and they presented to us what they want platforms to give them and standardize on dual cord and how the load is taken by the, the cords and everything. They want it to be shared load, right? All this stuff was popping up out of the original Uptime Institute survey they did. And so I'm like, wow, this is gold. This is exactly what I need to convince the people back at HP to um, change. To change. And why don't we just get certified by Uptime and have all our products be aligned to Uptime? I don't give a shit, excuse the expression, <laughs> but I don't really care um, whether it's the right one or not, but it's one. And as long forward. As, yeah. let's just move forward. And I, I call, as I leave the Uptime Institute, I call Paul Perez right away. I said, Paul, I just hit gold. I'm so super excited. I am so glad that we were invited to this and thank you for letting me come, but we should get all of our platforms in HP. To, to abide by what the customers here are asking for. And you can't argue. It's 50 That's what they key, want. 50 key enterprise customers want this and they agree to this. This will be a um, real win and a competitive advantage if we just flip to this. And so very quickly after that, while we couldn't agree internally, we got this outside standard and within HP we started um, – optimizing to that uptime institute i forgot what they called it it's been so long ago and but that you, was the first sheet of music that everyone could sing from it together and so exactly and so from that standpoint if i look at what ken brill i would argue ken brill was one of the if you really want to think between peter and ken they're the fathers of the data center industry and some people will argue but that standardization was the first step now Ken is Uptime. Uptime. Okay, Ken Brill. Gotcha. Yeah, he was he was the founder of Uptime. He passed uh, I don't know maybe a decade ago or so. Great great person, great friend. Um, and many of the your listeners will know either love him or hate him, but generally everyone will agree that he did a lot for the industry. Um, 
so because at the end, even with PUE, he became against me on PUE. He had a different metric he wanted to use, and, uh, and so we had a little dark time for a while. But in the end, you know, he was like a father to me, kind of like sound- Peter Gross. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter's—it's so funny. He has the touch to everybody. It seems like in this oh yeah, history. Peter's amazing. Yeah, he, he's another fantastic friend and mentor for me. He's. Uh, I asked him to come down in a few weeks just to dump two or three hours of energy talk into my brain because he's so passionate about that right now, right? So I'm like, hey, I need to probably sit with you maybe in a whiteboard and we talk about this stuff so I can absorb it because he speaks. He doesn't skip or speak in gaps. He just assumes everyone's as smart as him. So when he talks, if you're not hanging with him in that altitude near speed sometimes and you miss a piece, you're like, oh, I just fell out of the back of this conversation. Yeah, but he'll be the first to spend as much time as oh, you need to learn and understand. That's why yeah. I asked him. I'm like, I'll yeah. fly to Austin just to hang out with me for a day and teach yeah. me some yeah, stuff about Yeah, he's a great guy. So, yeah. uh, but so, you were saying this guy, these are the changes and you started pushing this and this was the first really homogenous construct that could be adopted by not only you, but I'm sure it was something that these 50 large key enterprise end users were were making as a requirement as well, right? So either way, it was becoming part of the norm of what was being built as a product. Yeah, and so we that became our standard and that's what we referred to. And so on the electrical side, we got standardized there, but we still had the cooling side. We still didn't agree in what environments. So, um, and we didn't agree on what the power was going to be and what do we have to design data centers for, what kind of density. Um, and so there were two other efforts. What was the initial watts per square foot, if you don't mind me asking? Was it like oh less than God. 50? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, ultimately, I think 50 was probably where roughly they were, but, uh, but, it was low. but there was some Can you data centers now? that were way below that, right? On-prem, yeah. Yeah. And so- um, but then the other problem we ran into is, like I said, the, how does power go up in the future and what should we be designing today to be ready for scale, the, the scale, the density. And, um, and, but there was no one agreed. This is another one of those things. And so the big learning for me was use the industry. The industry is your friend. The collaborations you have, these are the things that'll help change things. And so my experience with the uptime made me realize the strength of the industry and how if you get together, you can drive change within your company. It might be easier to drive the industry to agree than your company itself. This is the irony of the whole thing. And so- So you were changing the industry so that you could go back and weaponize the industry towards your company for change. Absolutely. I think it's genius. Absolutely. And that was the big epiphany. And so then we started this thermal management organization, uh, Don Beatty, no, no, this is before Don Beatty. Uh, Roger Schmidt got a few of us together. Uh, Roger, Shlomo, a few other people, and I don't remember everyone, but it was about 13 companies got together and we created with the Uptime. The Uptime published it for us because we, of course, Ken had already developed the standard for you know how uh, the specs should be on the electrical side. We came up with what we collectively took everyone's projection of what we thought the power curve was going to be in the next 10 years. Just off basic linear trending. You're like, this is what it was from the last- And it was 13 companies. We all put it together and we averaged it all together. How off were they? And actually it ended up being very good. And so there was this little pamphlet that Uptime created that was the work of 13 companies. 
Um, I think Dell was part of it. Uh, maybe Cisco. I, I, I don't really remember all the companies. Uh, I wish I did. I probably should have looked at these things. And um, uh, we published it. And that became the standard. And that's what we designed all our products and our all of our views was to this chart that was created by these 13 companies. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. I couldn't never have anyone agree. But yet again, second time we got it happening again. So then Don Beatty comes along, who uh, I think many people know Don, who's been, you know, uh, quite influential in the of industry and, and particularly um, uh, with what he did next. He met with Roger Schmidt uh, and Shlomo, I think it was in Hawaii or something like that at Interpac. I didn't go to that one. And Roger and Don uh, agreed that maybe the work we were doing with these 13 companies, we should move into ASHRAE. Um, and, uh, and that's where TC 9.9 started. And I was one of the first with, uh, you know, representing HP in ASHRAE. For real. And we published the temperature range book, right? That first book on the cooling requirements. And there again, as soon as we had that thing, everyone in HP, we could never agree. But now they all adopted but it. But now we all adopted it because this was the new standard. And so ASHRAE uh, TC 9.9, you know, was the avenue to do this. So, so you could see the trend. The trend was it's good for the industry to work together because it not only standardizes it, it standardizes but it helps you accomplish what you need to in your own company make it a better experience for customers yep. so if you think about all these things it laid the foundation you look at data centers no one argues what the data center environment should be it all goes back to tc 9.9 right or, or or uptimes requirements so it was really quite amazing so now what's the next thing efficiency so how does that all come around well, this was a interesting story, um, um, you know, and I, like I said, we have our customers, Chris and I would visit sometimes together, but one of my customers was uh, NTT Docomo. Actually, I don't know if I, that doesn't matter. I should, they should get some credit uh, versus be mad that I say this, but I went to their data center. And again, this is like 25 years ago, <laughs> but I went to their data center and it was a disaster, but it's not because they were bad at it. Everyone the was standard bad. was that it was just terrible. Everybody there, sucked, right? And um, talk to them about best practices, and they're like, "Okay, okay, Baladi son, we're gonna do your uh, best practices." I mean, they were really wonderful people. They were so open to actually experimenting, so I loved them for that. And uh, they said, "We will, um, we'll change. We'll do everything you say in your best practices, but." In three months after we do it, we want you to come back. And see how well effective it see is. See how effective it is. I mean, you know, there were crazy things that people were doing in data centers. And I think they may have been one of them that did it. They had a cooling problem. And someone came up with the idea that, well, let's put the tile right here by this column because right there is the thermostat. So they only measured the temperature in one place. And so... Their numbers look better, but they were still having failures. They have done nothing to improve the cooling. So, but that's the kind of stuff that was really happening in these data centers at the time. Um, and um, anyway, so three months later, I get on the plane, and you know, I'm like, oh God, hope this I'm, works. I'm going to go into this den of all these executives. Told you, I'm so. there all by myself, right? 
and they're like, uh, Christian, you know, I walk in, there's a stack back then it was dot matrix printed, you know, the paper that keeps yeah. continuous paper stack of, of temperatures and everything. And they said, well, Christian Baladi son, we, we've done what you said and, and, um, here's what we found. And they show me all the, uh, results and they go, what we found is there's really no change in temperatures in anything we've done. And I'm like, okay, that's okay. I don't see why that's a problem. So all the temperatures they said are within a degree of what they were before plus or minus. And, um, I'm like, great. And, uh, and then they go, however, there's a problem come into the data center with us. I go in and they go power or something. Go in this aisle. I go, wow, this is the cold aisle. Feels great. Go on this other aisle. Is very hot. I'm like, oh, this is great. They actually did what we said, right? And they followed the best practices that Chris and I had put together. And um uh they said, This is the problem. I go, what's the problem? No one wants to work behind the computers. So we're gonna change it back. I'm like, what? I go, no, this is much more efficient. Are they just reversing it? But they're like, the temperatures are the same. I go, but this is much more efficient. Uh, and they go, well, we have no way of measuring that. And that, of course, hit me right here, right in the center. And and they're, I'm thinking to myself, I have to be able to prove to them that this is more efficient. And so on the plane ride back from Tokyo, I'm just sitting there going, this is ridiculous. They are more efficient. Intuitively, they're more efficient, but they're gonna change it back because some people are uncomfortable about the temperature, which certainly is a problem, but I want it to be an informed decision that they know what they're giving up. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm going, but the problem is in that three months, they have twice the number of computers also. So I can't just look at the power draw because they have more stuff in there. So. I can't tell them it's more efficient or not. Um, and I'm like, what could I come up with? And so at 36,000 feet, somewhere over the Pacific, I came up with this concept of looking at that ratio and called it power usage effectiveness. And um, and by the time I landed, I had this freaking metric. And of course, I, I shared it with Chris, I shared it with so many people and they're all like, well, this is pretty good. And then that's was really the birth of PUE. People didn't like what it was called and maybe you should reverse it. And Ken Brill thought it should be reversed. It should be an efficiency versus an overhead. The PUE is an overhead metric, right? Um, and so, uh, but I spent time with Andrew Fanara, you know, who's the head of the uh, EPA Energy Star program at the time and was just talking to people and, and we started using it internally for like six years for Microsoft. I, I, I'm actually misrepresenting how it actually went because the first few years, it was only used internal to HP. It was never used external. Well, did NTT accept your math equation? Yeah, they did. They okay. used it. So they kept it the way it was? They didn't yeah. reverse it back? Yep. They're like, okay, well, that makes more sense then. Yeah, because now they have the metric. Down. Right. And then you realize, wow, this is, metrics are so important. But here's another example now that uh, now we actually had those best practices and now we had a metric to measure how good those best, no one talks 
at length about best practices. We used to just present best practices and walk away. Now there's a metric that people could kind of tune to. So how long ago was the PUE idea then? You were at HP was still. late nineties. Okay. Is when I came up with it. And then we went public and I give credit, credit to Chris for this. Cause Chris at one point said, Christian, this should be published. And I'm like, uh, uh, you know, I didn't like writing papers, I'll be honest. And so I'm like, Chris, you write it, let's publish it, if you write it. And he, he wrote the paper, we submitted it to some power conference, I think it was in California somewhere, never really made any headway. Uh, you know, no one picked it up, but at least it timestamped things. Um, and Chris might even remember what conference it was. Uh, but again, it didn't get traction yet. And now it's in teeth in every contract that's signed, every lease yeah. has a PUE. Well, so there was the next step. So this is again, how the industry helps. I, I think the thing people don't realize is the power of the industry. I, I think there's some people that really see it and get it. Dean Nelson, he's the master of creating movements in, in our industry. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so this was somewhere around 2006. And at that same time, Paul Perez, um, who became my boss again, Paul moved to Houston to be part of the uh, compact leadership when the acquisition happened. But I ended up going to work for him again down in Houston. And uh, Larry Vertal, Bruce Shaw, Paul and myself were at some uptime conference in 2006 where I presented PUE publicly for the first time. Not, not just a paper, but actually having a presentation about it. And those three guys came to me, both Bruce and Larry were AMD. They both came to me and they said, hey, Christian, we want to start a whole new organization that's about efficiency in data centers called the Green Grid. Oh, wow. And so it was at that uptime meeting that the four of us came up with the concept of the Green Grid. Paul of course, the bad thing was AMD, Intel wouldn't want to join because, you know, there's all the political all the competition. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. But Paul, uh, who is the master uh, influencer, said, well, I'm going to take care of that. And he started working with all his, uh, his customers to try to pull them into the green grid. And so that was the beginning of the green grid. And at, and I even, when we met there, I remember having the discussion, I said, and I have the perfect paper to publish for the green grid. It'll be the PUE paper. The PUE paper was the very first paper for the green grid. And that, that green grid paper became the foundation for PUE. And that's where I think PUE actually, other than being a, a, a thing that we used for our customers or whatever, that was where it really kicked off to becoming a universal metric was through the green grid. And that's what made the green grid become credible as well. All right, let's pause on all that because that is... That's where we were going to, we have to pause that part because when we come back, I want to start with Green Grid right where you left off. 